Welcome to The Real 7 Show. As always, this podcast will be completely raw, unfiltered, and uncensored. Today I sit down and speak with Isoteric Eddie. Eddie is widely known for his research on history and all of his knowledge and study pertaining to consciousness. He is also the author of some of the most fascinating books that I've ever read, such as The Crystal Lattice Mind Illusion, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed, and The Anunnaki Theorem. So if you guys are ready to take a deep dive with us, then buckle up, because here we go. What's up, everybody? I'm uh, Esoteric Eddie. Um, I've been studying the occult, the esoteric, the conspiratorial for about 15 years now. Um, I've had a life as a multifaceted artist. I've done many different things throughout my life, and most of it has revolved around these subjects. Um, more recently, the past two years, I've been working under the, the name or the brand Esoteric Eddie. And the past two years, I've published three books, um, well over 100 videos on YouTube, including full length documentaries on many different subjects. And uh, I've been featured on over 100 podcast shows now to, to speak about my work. And I just do it for the people, you know, I'm just here to educate and uh, elevate. Absolutely, man. And uh, like I was telling you earlier, you know, I've I kind of came across your work through a couple of, uh, you know, random, uh, you know, podcasts on Spotify, uh, kind of found the name, you know, Isoteric Eddie. It's pretty, pretty easy to remember. It's not going anywhere. It's uh, ingrained in the psyche now with regards to, you know, anything esoteric. So the one thing that, uh, you know, I really wanted to pull you on here and talk about was, you know, with the world and the state that it's in and all the confusion and the mass psyop over the last three years, what we've seen is a lot of people um, specifically in the Christian community, start to really put this Satan character in the forefront. Now, those of us who have been talking about conspiracy myself over the last 18 years, the whole, you know, you can call it satanic, but I think it's it's a good idea to kind of clear up the entire Satan fallacy as people know it. And you're the guy. <laughs> you're the guy. Like the, the one that uh, explained it probably in the most in-depth, best way I've heard it. So I'd love you to cover all things Satan, his origin, what it is, and, you know, take us away. Thank you, man. Thank you for saying that. Um, and I just, I just want to preface with saying that, that uh, I did write a book titled The Lucifer Mystery Revealed that does have a documentary version for free that you can watch on my channel, Esoteric ADTV. And um, although the, the book is about mostly about lucifer it doesn't go in depth about satan but they're pretty much the same character and and therefore it's pretty much the same deconstructing deconstruction um so like you said right i mean this this world is mostly religious you know we live in a world that uh runs off of ancient systems with whether that's within government or religion and most people in this world see life as if there's a war between good and evil. And I agree to that to some extent as well. Um, but growing up in a Christian home, both Catholic and Christian, you know, we're taught to believe that, that that war is fought between God and Satan, God and the devil. And again, I agree to that to some certain extent. But as a historian, you know, I, I like to look at all these things 
you know, unbiased and kind of just ask what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And so the first popular book that I wrote, the first book that I wrote, technically, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed, um, which took me two hours or two years, two years to write, which I dropped back in 2021. Um, started with me asking, you know, who is Lucifer? You know, where did we get this idea of Lucifer? And before I set out on that journey, I kind of had an idea already, but I ended up learning a whole lot more that I never knew. And as I say in the book, uh, we all learned about Lucifer through one verse in the Bible. And that verse is Isaiah 14, 12. And that's the famous verse that goes, Oh, Lucifer, how art thou fallen, et cetera, et cetera. And that verse went off to create this Lucifer archetype that we have today that is, you know, expressed time and time again in different TV shows, books, and whatever, you name it. And one of the first artists to really expand on the Lucifer archetype was Dante Alighieri with his uh, Dante's Inferno. And Dante's Inferno was, was a work of fiction. And matter of fact, it was kind of like a psychological um, look into his own mind and what was going on around him at that time. And he actually wrote his uh, childhood crush as like the main feminist protagonist, a feminine protagonist in that story, you know, the uh, Beatrice. And so uh, later on, though, the church kind of like took Dante Alighieri's book as like a kind of like canon because it, it has like the most descriptive uh, tellings of hell, you know? And so they kind of took that idea, Dante's idea of hell and kind of also ran with that. But again, it was all a work of fiction based mm. off his mind and his life and what was going on around him. And that's kind of the same trend that all, you know, theologians and different religious cultures have done uh, you know, they've all kind of taken that Lucifer archetype and Satan archetype and blown it up and exaggerated it to more than it was meant to be originally. Now, going back to Isaiah 14, 12, you know, he, he does mention a Lucifer, um, but not by that name. That word Lucifer was translated um, out of the original Hebrew. And uh, it was originally translated in the Latin version because it's a Latin word with two root words, meaning uh, that are lucis, you know, meaning light and fere, meaning to hold or to bring. And that's where the occult got the idea of Lucifer being a bringer of light or the light bearer. But uh, the the Latin went into the English. And in the English is where we saw Lucifer as an uppercase uh, pronoun, because in the Latin, it was a lowercase adjective. Now, in the in the English is where we first saw Lucifer and misread it as a person. Um, but tracing it backwards, we can kind of see how this mistake happened. So in the English, we have the Lucifer name. Um, and then in the Latin, we had the Lucifer adjective. And then in the Greek, where we would see Lucifer today, we would see phosphorus, which is the Greek equivalent to the Latin Lucifer, which is a word that means bright, shiny, or like fire. And all of those came from the Hebrew word that was used in Isaiah 14, 12, which was Hallel ben Shahar. And Hallel ben Shahar translates to Hallel, which is a name meaning bright or shiny, ben Shahar, son of Shahar. And Shahar means dawn or morning. And so that's where we got the idea of Lucifer, son of the morning. 
Now, there's there's multiple reasons why Isaiah used Hillel ben Shahar. At the time Isaiah was writing, the uh, Babylonians were descending upon the kingdom of Judah. You know, and this was prior to the Bible being put together. And Isaiah was a royal prophet and a royal scribe. And he was seemingly a real figure. We have some pieces of evidence pointing to him being a real figure. You know, and that whole Babylonian exile era was a real time in history. But uh, nonetheless, so he was writing a uh, polemic prophecy against the Babylonians and, and their downfall, their eventual downfall. And he, he said that they were like Hillel ben Shahar. And now Hillel ben Shahar was an old Canaanite deity. The Canaanites being the people that came before the Israelites, the culture that the Israelites were born out of, you know. And so uh, and we know this. We know this about Hillel ben Shahar because we uncovered these cylinder texts out of the Canaanite area, you know, the ancient Middle East which are now called the Baal cycle texts. We found them in the thirties. And in these texts, we find these stories of the polytheistic gods prior to Judaism. And in one of the stories, Baal or Baal steps down from his throne and a younger deity um, steps up to the throne, you know, decides to, to see if he could be fit for the throne. And it turns out that he's not fit for the throne. He's literally too short. Like his legs are like dangling from the throne as it's written. And so he steps down and he goes back to his stay. And that deity was Hillel ben Shahar. Not necessarily known by that name in that text, but many scholars have deciphered it and, and concluded that that was the Hillel, Hillel ben Shahar that Isaiah was talking about. But what makes this all interesting is that deity in that text was named Athtar. Now, Athtar was a male rendition of a female goddess named Ashtar, who was a rendition of Ishtar, Astarte, and Inanna all ancient Canaanite, Sumerian, Babylonian uh, goddesses. And all of those deities, the goddesses and the god, um, their names were also used as representations for the planet Venus or the star Venus. You know, some ancients called it a planet. Some, you know, we call it a star or whatever, or, or vice versa. And so all those names and all those deities were representations also of the planet or star Venus. And what's interesting is Venus is the brightest celestial object seen in the morning sky preceding the sun. And so Isaiah was writing all of this into his polemical prophecy as metaphorical language, saying that the Babylonians were like Hillel ben Shahar, thinking that they could step up to the throne when, when they are not fit to rule, but also saying they're like Venus. You know, they, they think that they are of importance, that they are bright and shiny when they would soon be overpowered by the light of God, in this case being represented as the light of the sun. Mm. Man, so with all of that being said, how does this modern depiction of Satan or Lucifer come into everything via Christianity? So what happened is the early Christian <laughs> writers were looking at these texts, these, these uh, manuscripts of the Old Testament, and they just simply misread it. You know, they didn't have the cultural context in mind. You know, they were reading something that was, you know, close to a thousand years old, you know, about, yeah, close to a thousand years old already. And so they were out of touch. I mean, these were Hellenistic Jews, in some cases, just straight up Greeks, you know, reading these, these, these uh, manuscripts and, and 
they were out of touch with the cultural context. And one person in particular who was one of the very first Christian writers to look at the Isaiah verse and run with it as if it was some archetype um, different from what Isaiah was speaking about was Oregon of Adamantius, or sorry, Oregon Adamantius. And Oregon Adamantius, who I speak of in the book, in the documentary, was uh, a very early Christian writer. I mean, we're talking the second, no, yeah, the second century of the common era. And he was actually later like uh, demonized for being a, a heretic because he was kind of wild with his writings. He was pretty psychedelic. He kind of mm. went off the beaten path of, of what the church was trying to teach. I think he was a cool guy. He was just kind of a little out there with some of the things he was he was teaching and reading into. But he was one of the very first to look at this verse and be like, oh, wow, Isaiah is speaking about this whole other archangel being named lucifer and you can read that in his book called uh depressimpes depress yeah depressimpes um something like that i might be butchering it but um yeah so he was one of the first and then a lot of other church early church writers and 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 fathers as they call them ran with that idea too but it didn't go unchallenged for example uh martin luther right the famous protestant reformer mm. um writing many centuries later uh, spoke about this being a mistake. And I mentioned that in the book, you know, he, he clearly states in one of his writings that it was an er uh, an arrogant mistake. You know, there was never a Lucifer, you know, Isaiah was, was just using metaphorical language. So even some of the early, you know, church writers during the middle medieval times and whatnot, they, they understood this too. And it didn't, things got even worse once the occult got their hands on it. Mm. I think the occult did more damage than the church really uh i mean the church did pretty pretty badly as well you know exaggerating all of this but once the occult got their hands on on it they fell in love with the idea of the archetype and um i speak about that in the book and one of the most famous and most influential um early occultists i would say eliphas levy um, ran with this idea as well and spoke about lucifer a lot throughout his writings but the thing is eliphas levy um, who is the guy who illustrated the famous Baphomet image, you know, the half man, half goat image, um, also knew that this was was uh, fictional. You know, he he also he also knew that that there was no Lucifer, but he mm. just I love he just loved the idea, the philosophy behind the archetype and thought that there was power in it. And so a lot of occultists that followed after him, like Madame Blavatsky, uh, Aleister Crowley, who believed he was the reincarnation of Levy. Um, also took to the Lucifer archetype and just kept blowing it up and blowing it up. And, and here we are today again, where it's a TV show and it's all embedded into rock and roll and the spirit of, of rebellion um, when it just simply never existed. Mm. So that that's kind of what I want to dissect is, is that very particular part of it, right? Because we have this, this time now that it's, it's almost look, how do you like, you know, have a talk with somebody knowing that Lucifer and and even this, you know, Satan, I, I, I would think that Satan's more of like a religion than it is a, uh, you know, a, a deity of any sort. But it's almost tricky when you speak to Christians like, well, even demons are not what you think they are, man. Like, they're not like these, you know, things that come out of the shadows with these horns and are going to come like steal your soul. Like, where did the the archetype of demons come from? What is that? All right. So I, I believe I do touch on this in my uh, Lucifer book, too. 
Um, it all, all of this kind of stemmed from translational errors and mm. cultural contextual errors. So the first people to translate the Torah were the Greeks. And they translated it into the famous Septuagint. And they didn't really know what to do with a lot of the words in the Torah. And a lot of, and they kind of got lazy with it, you know, um, for one example, and I don't know the exact verse right now, but one example in the Torah, um, when God is speaking about the other, the other deities that were being worshiped, he refers to them as like dirty rags. And I think mm. the word that's actually used is he, he, that they're actually rags full of, of shit is what he actually says in the Torah. And so the Greeks just simply translated that as, as, as demons. So in the Torah, he's, he, God is just saying your, your gods are just, just, just filthy rags. And that word or that verbiage got just translated into demons, not the demons that we say in English, but demons in Greek mm. and the demons in Greek weren't evil per se. They were just gods. You know, they were good or or bad. You know, if you know anything about like Greek gods, they're all like these whimsical characters who have the power to be good or power to be bad. You know, all these clever, whimsical people. So a lot of the words got lazily translated into just daemons, the Greek daemons, which later got translated into the English demons. And through our cultural eyes, just demons just meant, you know, Satan's. Uh, servants when uh that just was that was just a lazy way of thinking about it mm. so when we get to this this crossroads right where people kind of have an image in their head of what these things are and it's largely just lost in translation and people are just kind of confused because it seems like that's what it is it's simply just you know people not being able to take the original text and translate it to english today i mean i'm not sure how much you know you uh you know you kind of do research on etymology and stuff but English is just a Germanic coded language used to basically enslave people, right? That's why, you know, the, the vibrations that are attached to words mean certain things. And that's why you hire a lawyer or a liar to represent you in the court of law, right? Like all these little, you know, nuances to the language. Now, there's a main component of, of the last three years that I start uh, started seeing thrown around a lot. And I think that it's largely misguided in the quote unquote spiritual community that has become a, a mess. Um, and it's this concept of consciousness. Now, what do you think consciousness is like, like what's your perception of it? Yeah. Well, um, I just, published my third book which touches on this subject entirely it's mm. titled the uh crystal lattice mind illusion and i have the book out and also the documentary version that you can watch for free on my channel but uh yeah i've always been fascinated with consciousness the mind and, and all of that since i was a young young person took some psychology courses in high school and even before then i was reading books and stuff and so like most of my books and all my work, I sat down and I decided to dive into this head on and, and just go through a journey of learning what it is and all that. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what the mainstream believes consciousness is, what some of the fringe scientists believe consciousness is and, and where we're going with it in uh, the science of today. And what I learned is first that during the Einsteinian era, you know, if you will, 
they believed, you know, mainstream scientists believe that consciousness simply came from the brain, that that all of consciousness is just um, a, an illusory experience of all of our senses working and operating at, at the same time. And so we have this illusion that we're conscious, but really all it is is just the summation of all of our senses operating at the same time. And um, I believe, and, and a lot of the fringe scholars believe that that is inherently not true. You know, because if that were to be true, we would be we wouldn't be any different from each other. You know, we wouldn't be any different from from robots or some of the minuscule um, beings on the lower totem pole of, of the biological life uh, scale who have static thinking, is which is what I speak about in the book. I think that there are different levels of consciousness in the way that there are different levels of thinking and in the way that there are different levels of maturity. And so. I, I, I believe that consciousness is what we really are. It is who we really are. And, and uh, we can't fully fathom that right now. Um, but I think that's a part of what this is all about. And I think that's, a, that's what the goal of the ancient mystics and yogis was, um, was to fully realize that we are consciousness. And that's what is called self-realization. And so today, as I've learned through the journey of writing my book, um, quantum physics is, is showing more and more that the Einsteinian model of consciousness is incorrect, that consciousness is not produced in the brain, rather it's the other way around, that uh, not necessarily other, the other way around, but at the very least, that consciousness and the brain are two distinct forces. The co consciousness is not happening in the brain. Consciousness is just operating within the brain. They're, they're being used together. And um, we know that through a lot of different experiments that have been done over the years. And one of them being the experiments with, um, what are they called? Uh, entangled entanglement or entangled photons. And just last year, three scientists who I speak about in the book and documentary won a Nobel Prize in physics for finally proving that entanglement is a real phenomena. And uh, what that means is, is that particles at the, at the most minuscule of level can send information to and from one another despite their position in the universe. So two particles can be um, on the other opposite sides of the universe and instantaneously send information to one another faster than the speed of light. Now, Einsteinian physics tells us that that is impossible. And not just that, but also all physical objects at, at their particle level are constantly phasing in and out or vibrating in and out of existence. And so when we're looking at everything around us, it all seems unitary, it all seems physical, but in reality, it's not. It's all made up of, of basically light. And this phenomena is what is also called um, non-local activity, which is a physics term. And Einstein famously called non-local activity spooky action at a distance. He hated this stuff, you know, if I could say. You know, he, he was at least annoyed of it. He didn't believe that quantum physics 
was a real thing. I mean, the, during his time, theoretically, it was. It could work out. The math could work out theoretically. But we have just now, in the most recent years, been proving that quantum physics is real. Basically saying that um, everything around us is an illusion. It, it's it's basically a hologram. Nothing is really physical and nothing. And things can change, too. Things can change whether we're looking at them or not. And so um, that's just one thing, right? That just tells us that our physical world is an illusion. And that that is inherently true, right? Because as I like to say in the book and in my presentations, we are not one thing ourselves. You know, everybody walks around thinking that we're just one thing. We're just a body. We're just a person. Mm -mm. When, right. when that's not even true. You know, our body is made up of of hundreds, if not millions of, of components, um, if you want to count all the cells and whatnot. So the body itself is, is broken up of millions of components. And we have two major components of what we are now, and that is the mind and the body. And those two together is what I call the spirit machine. I think whatever created us uh, designed us to, to harmonize those two parts of ourselves and um i in my book in the documentary i showcase and demonstrate a lot of other scientists mainstream and fringe who have begun to realize that consciousness is not happening in the brain it's happening you know aside from it it's merely entering the brain and using it and one of those scientists was a guy by the name of carl pribram now carl pribram was a neuro uh a, a neuro um surgeon a brain surgeon for like 40 years or something and and then and he's got over uh, like well over 200 writings on the brain on the body and some of his later work before he passed away he started to realize that consciousness was not happening in the brain and he developed what he called the holonomic brain theory and he realized that the mind and the brain were working in conjunction in the same way that holograms and lasers work in conjunction. Mm. Now, the way holograms are created in, in simple is you have a photosensitive plate with the information on it. And that photosensitive plate is hit with the laser. And then those that action creates the hologram. And so Carl Pribram realized after his many decades of being a, a neurosurgeon that consciousness was like the laser and the brain was like the photosensitive plate where the program is, is stored. And so when consciousness enters a brain or a body, it then perceives the hologram. It then perceives the reality that is programmed within it. I like to, you know, give the, the, the metaphor of, of the turtle shell. To me, because some people will say, okay, well, then how come when your brain is damaged, your mind is damaged? Well, again, they're, they're, they're a tool, right, that are being used. Well, the brain is a tool, but they're, they're being used together. And so the brain or the body is like a turtle shell. It's not what the turtle is. It's just what the turtle is using to live inside of. And if the mm. turtle shell is damaged, it's going gonna, it's gonna to alter the way the turtle lived its life. Man, there's fucking so much there, dude. Um, cause that kind of gives people a good description of what the concept of consciousness is. And 
knowing this and kind of coming into all of this information that you've come into and, you know, now written about and, and, and seriously studied. And from what I can tell of you as an individual is when you study, you, you fucking study, uh, which is good because a lot of people half-ass study and just take headlines and think that that's the truth rather than kind of diving, you know, underneath the sheets and figuring out what's going on. But knowing what you know now with regards to, I guess, for lack of a better term, what consciousness is, quote unquote, because I mean, again, I don't think that we could fathom that. How has that kind of formed your belief system in there being some sort of a higher power? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, great question. I grew up in a, again, in a Christian home. So like, I always have that default, you know, Christian perspective and it's useful, you know, but I try to nowadays, actually, it's funny. I was actually just having this conversation with, with my friend the other day. Uh, we were up in the Sequoias and she invited me out there. It was, it was beautiful. And um, she's like more spiritual. We're both definitely not religious, you know, but she's definitely more spiritual and she's always getting on me for not having enough spiritual practices. And I realized I'm like, man, I'm, I'm definitely not religious, but I'm also like not very spiritual either. You know, I do some things that, that some people would consider spiritual, but to me, they're just like practical things like meditating and breath work and stuff like that. Sure. But, um, I realized that I'm, I'm, just an existentialist you know that's mm. that's what i'm starting to realize i'm i'm like kind of in the middle of both being religious and spiritual i i acknowledge that we are not this body i acknowledge that there is a creator but i don't necessarily live my life um to some sort of like disciplinary regimen because of that you know i'm i'm, I'm simply aware of it I'm, I'm i'm happy for it and i do give praise and thanks um, but being an existentialist just means you are not under the illusion that this, mm. that you are physical and that this life is the end of all of it, you know, and mm -hmm. even more so you are, you are grimly aware that, that uh, everything here is temporary, mm. you know, and so you gotta, you gotta make of that what you will. Um, but knowing what I know about consciousness now, I'm actually even more excited about this life and more excited about what's going to happen after this life because what i found through my journey of learning was that um again quantum physics is pointing towards a realm of infinity that this realm that we're living in is actually just one dimension mm. and uh two scientists who i who i uh, speak about in the book by the name of vernon uh i think it's vernon nepp and ed close and Vernon Nepp is actually like the top scientist who's who's looked into like uh, deja vu. But these two guys, Vernon Nepp and Ed Close, you know, old school scientists, came up with a theory. It's a really long named theory. It's like the vortical paradigm theory, something like that. It's in my book. But they 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 looked at the Einsteinian model of physics and realized that the Einsteinian model of physics could no longer explain the universe we were living in. And so they had to scrap everything and go back and rewrite a new model of physics. And when they did that, they realized that the universe we live in, because of all the weird stuff that happens at the quantum level, could only be explained if we were to live in at least a nine-dimensional universe. Mm. With an infinite universe or an infinite dimension um, that's kind of running in between all of them and around them. And again, that's really hard for us to fathom. And I don't think as humans, we were really meant to fathom that at the full capacity. 
And so I do believe that there is an infinite dimension and that infinite dimension is what all the ancients have called heaven, you know, the afterlife. And it's what all the mystics have been trying to reach. And um, I actually pointed out in my book and many other pieces of work, uh, a CIA document titled uh, Project Gateway or the uh, analysis and assessment of, of the gateway process that was written during the 80s in which they spoke about this after uh, studying the work of Robert Monroe. And Robert Monroe was a radio broadcaster turned uh, mystic who realized that the two hemispheres of the brain are usually out of sync. But when you harmonize the two hemispheres of the brain through different binaural or frequency meditations, you can induce some very fascinating things like astral projection, lucid dreaming and stuff like that and, and reach some of these different dimensions. And so, again, I believe that there are different dimensions. Quantum physics is showing that. The mystics have known that. You know, religion speaks about it, but in different ways like heaven and hell and stuff like that. And so I think that there is an infinite plane and we can get to that infinite plane. But I think it takes active, if you will, spiritual work to get there. You know, and I think the very first step is realizing the mind and body distinction, you know, realizing that we are not this body that, and, and actually getting into that and, and being able to uh, strengthen that connection. And I really don't think that it's very. Um, for lack of better words, complex in in just the general idea of it right like i don't i don't know why people these days are so kind of hard in their position and they're willing to just die on their hill without wanting to explore it i mean if you think of like the the old theory one of the oldest theories that i heard and whether it's even coined in in science or not is is you know uh, it's kind of you know own cup of tea but uh you know speaking to people a long time ago about this being you know just one of many dimensions i mean this has been known for a long time man like it's impossible for this to be the only plane and in my last podcast episode actually i spoke about my first mushroom trip and being able to see my my son who passed away um at the age that he would have been in in that moment and i dude i smelled the ocean i felt the sand between my toes i felt myself crying i i could, I could smell the air i could feel the breeze it was no less reality then this was right here. Right. Yeah. And I've actually, you know, the, the more I've kind of, you know, pondered on all of these ideas, because th this is like my realm of thinking, I, I love this shit, right? Like, dude, there's so many possibilities out there for you to think that like, oh, you fucking go to work, you come home, that's it. Get the fuck out of here. That's not even close. Right. And then you start talking to people. and It's kind of like, well, this is a little too deep. I'm going to leave now. Right. So you just become yeah. like the crazy guy. And one thing that I've always thought is like, if we're supposed to believe that this is the only place that we exist, then there has to be somebody who understands that the masses believe that. And how easy is it then to control the masses when all they know is the one area they think? Do people think that this is the only plane they exist in? And it's almost like a freeing you letting the shackles off of your ankles the moment you recognize, ah, dude, there's no way. There's not a single fucking chance that I only exist here because I've always thought of this. Well, if we are this vibration and, and all of these atoms just vibrating at a certain frequency that basically create us and we've confirmed that timelines are real, then how do we know that when we get severely ill, that the healthy us doesn't just switch timelines with the sick us in this reality? How do you know? 
You don't know. I mean, you feel completely different physically. So what's that change? Is it really illness? Or have you done something that quantum physics just can't quite explain yet? Have you just crossed the timeline? Because the opposite of what's happening to you now exists in another timeline. And then the opposite of that is in another timeline. And then is there infinite time? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> right? So this yeah. is when you start getting into these, these possibilities. And why I ask you about the whole God thing is, I think you and I stand in in a very similar position. I don't I don't believe that there's this big man in the sky that sent this, you know, mock him down here to save Earth. It just seems very I'd, I'd prefer the Anunnaki theory myself makes a lot more sense. But it kind of how do you feel about it, man? Like when when yeah. you think of of the the divine, like we are all a piece of something because when we die, like. You've been to a funeral, obviously. And when you're looking at the body, dude, like I almost can't find an emotion for it because I'm not looking at who I knew. Who I knew is off into the ether. Yeah. Right. I'm just looking at a vessel now. So it's kind of like it's just not the same anymore. So what does that do to you when you start when you know, dude, you have this inner standing of something much deeper? How does that start to affect how you live your life? Yeah, man. Powerful question. Um, got a few things to say to it. I remember the moment where I, I fully felt mm. in every ounce of my body that, that, you know, there was more to this life and that we weren't our bodies. I was walking down this trail and I was, I was going through an existential moment. I was probably off of some cannabis. And I remember looking down and seeing a dead rabbit and it was like slaughtered, you know, like it was like, you could barely tell that it was a rabbit, but it was a rabbit. And I looked down at it and I was like, dude, there's, there's no way that whatever was living in that is, is just that now. And it just, I, it was just a simple uh, experience, but I just, that was the first time in my life where I really, really felt it and knew it. And that's when I, just like how you said with the funeral experience, it was a similar thing. Like there's just, there's just no way that whatever was living in that jumping around the other day is just now that. And so I've known that for many, many years and I've felt that for many years. And um, I don't know, I've always had, I've always had a sort of spiritual confidence all throughout my life. And I credit that to my Christian upbringing. You know, my mom, she always instilled like God and the love of God and, and, and that kind of thing in me. So I've always had a spiritual confidence. Um, I, was, I was never really afraid of death, um, definitely perplexed by it, you know, and sometimes still getting to some grim perplexion about it. But ultimately, um, I, I don't pretend to know who God is. You know, I like to say I've, I've never shook his, its hand. I've never said hello to it directly. But I do acknowledge and believe that there is a creator. And I give praise and thanks to it every day. And I might be crazy, a crazy person, but I speak to it <laughs> every now and then. It, sure, never yeah. speaks, it never speaks back, but it's okay. Um, so I acknowledge there's a creator. I believe in the creator. I think that there is an infinite afterlife. I think that we are infinite, but I think that this simulation that we're in, if you will, um, is, is, is complex and it's not just easy for us to break out. Actually, I don't think that when we die, we just get to go to heaven or hell. I think both are somewhat of a, of a, a privilege as crazy as that sounds to, to be able to go somewhere and just be there for eternity that's a privilege, man. I think that when we die, it's much more complex than that. There, there are, I think there are so many other dimensions in between heaven and hell 
before we can ultimately get there. And I don't think that it's our creator's intention for us to go directly to heaven, what some would call source, because I believe that that heaven, real heaven is, is source. It's where the unfathomable God or creator resides. And I think once we go there, we are absorbed back into it and we lose all ego and are, are giving up ourselves to be redesigned. And so I think that before we go to that place, um, we are given many more tests, many more obstacles, and, and, and many more opportunities to explore the different dimensions, explore the different universes, explore the different timelines. But I don't think we'll get to do any of that um, until we wake up in this one first. You know, so... Do you uh, ever... Yeah, go ahead. Do you ever think that heaven and hell is nothing more than just an archetype? It definitely is. You know, it definitely is. And it, in some level, it kind of hurts me to say that again, because of my Christian upbringing. But, um, you know, the, these ideas, man, they're, they're just archetypes that were built onto archetypes. And we know this. I mean, to me, it's, it's obvious, you know, and as a historian, I got to be honest with, with how, how I look at things. I want to believe in a heaven. I don't, I don't want to believe in a hell, but at the same time, I do want to believe in hell because I want to hope that, you know, people who, mm -hmm. who deserve to be there go there. Um, but do I actually think that they're real places? Not really. No. Um, because yeah, I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into why I think that, but I just don't think that the heaven and hell that is given to us by the church really exist, you know, but again, I do believe in a creator and I do, and, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited about this life. I'm excited about what's after this too, you know, and I've actually recently had some, some, uh, some death scares and in those moments, you know, in those flashing moments where I, where I mm -hmm. believe that I'm like moments from death, um, I just kind of accepted it. You know, I just accepted it. And I just said, well, I mean, it's, if this is the time, then this is the time. And when I accept it, it's like this calming peace comes down because I'm excited about what's next. And, and I, I, I didn't, I had no control coming here. You know, from what I remember, I had no control or no say in coming here. And so why put up a fuss in, in going what's to where's next? Mm. Yeah, dude, M makes a whole lot of sense. Honestly, um, I'll be honest with you, dude. Death is something that still wakes me up. Like there's times where I'll wake up out of a deep sleep, kind of like, fuck, this is going to end one day. But I don't think that it's uh, an inherent fear of death. I think that it's more so this who's going to protect my kids? Who's going to, you know, protect the family? Who's going to be the the rock and the backbone of the household? Like, I think it's more so the fear of just not knowing what's coming. But then you look around the world and like, whatever's coming is going to be hella, like super destructive. I mean, whatever that divine force is, is fucking mad right now. And um, <laughs> it's to the slightness wrath on the world, like slowly letting us know, like you guys keep fucking around. You can find out, right? Like it's, it's giving yeah. us these little hints. But oh, the yeah. reason I ask about the heaven and hell archetype is because, dude, you could get two people that are experiencing their consciousness in two completely different ways. One can be experiencing complete bliss, a.k.a. heaven. The other can be experiencing the worst life ever and it's just complete hell and largely it's just perspective but they could be sitting at the same bar same table sharing the same drink and one could be living in complete heaven one could be living in complete hell 
And that's the day that I actually watched two people sitting at a table and one was completely broken and the other was, you know, seemingly living a great life and, you know, kind of talking to that person about how to make better decisions. And it just kind of dawned on me, dude, like the entire restaurant just disappeared. And all I saw was these two and I had like this realization, dude, like you get fucking blasted off into whatever it is at deep thought. And it's like, bro, like this is the archetype right here. Like they are the creation of that heaven and hell archetype like holy fuck it's 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 a perception of of the reality we're given of our consciousness so do you think that it's this is something that i struggle with and i'm just gonna ask you about it now i grew up you know catholic as well went to catholic high school mother wanted to be a nun back you know back in her day so and then she met my dad, which is like the complete opposite. And it's it's kind of funny. Um, but none of that ever sat well with me. It seemed like an industry. It seemed like a, a very man-made belief system. And then you read this Bible and you're like, this is this is full of fallacy, right? Like Bible by Baal, two gods, like whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, what are we what are we reading here? And and then all this allegorical shit, and then Adam and Eve, and you realize all like just all the representations, and then you can get into like astro theology and how that kind of ties in, and it makes you wonder, right? Like, what do you think God is? Oh man, <laughs> that's a big one, man. Um, <clears throat> and again, it's funny. I was just having this conversation with my friend the other day. And- Weird, right? Weird how that works, huh? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and nowadays my answer to that is, is again, one, I don't, I don't pretend to know what it is. Sure. I do not know what it is, but to me, you know, God is just, is, is the creator. And I don't think we could fathom what it is right now. And Mm. in my book, um, I demonstrate that by uh, going over a tale within Kabbalah. Kabbalah being the the Jewish mysticism. And in this tale, which is known as the Shavira, the breaking of the vessels, we are told that before this universe, uh, God, known as the Ein Sof, the unknowable light in this tale, created a universe uh, before this one. And in that universe, he put it or it put itself a part of itself in all of its creations and, you know, its light, but it was too powerful. So the entire universe exploded. And so in the next universe, the one that we are in, it uh, committed what is known as simsum, self-limitation. So it withdrew some of itself, withdrew some of its light into its newly creations so that uh, we could be sustained and actually live. And so to me, that explains why God or the creator is seemingly everywhere, but also seemingly nowhere. Mm. And so I think that the creator is unfathomable. Nobody can really know it. Nobody can really speak to it, you know, and I'm okay with that because just looking around at nature, I realize that it's, it is at work, you know, and if you want to know what God thinks of us or, or expects of us, I I think that you just have to look at nature because Mm -hmm. nature is the only thing in the universe that operates without sentient interference it simply operates and so when we observe nature i think we're observing god's direct expression 
And God is saying through nature that it expects us to evolve. It expects us to struggle and it expects us to go through cycles. The entire universe is built off of those principles, you know, cycles, seasons, evolution, struggle. And so I believe that eventually uh, we will, we as a race, as a spiritual race, will slowly evolve to the point where we will have the spiritual capability to fully fathom not only what we are and what this is, but who and what God is. Mm. And what do you think about the theory that, um, and, and this one is is probably one that I, I oddly, I won't say that I understand it, but I feel it more than anything else. And that's, I think that all of these these old teachings and old books, especially something like, you know, the Bible would be just the 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 first self-help book. Because quite honestly, when I look at all of these disciples, all I see is one person and a bunch of personalities. Honestly, the Bible reminds me a lot of the Matrix. If you watch the Matrix, Neo, like Neo and everybody else, everybody else is not existent. It's all just part of Neo's subconscious, right? Like Morpheus is a subconscious, Trinity explains love, right? And 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 it's this holy trinity of you know the battle between man love and his subconscious and when i made that video people were like fucking going nuts because then it was like dude just go watch the movie back and visualize it as there's one character and one only and the rest are just depictions of that character and all of a sudden it, it pulls your perspective out of it so when i i came across this concept years ago and, and it resonated with me on the deepest level and that's when somebody said something that was seemingly arrogant and that's like no no we are god and people get fucking pissed immediately. And it's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Like, pull your belief system out of that and just truly think about it. Without you and your ability to perceive and create that, without you to experience all of the reality, the moment you get turned off, your physical vessel gets turned off, none of this exists. So when you start to think, like, am I the creator of my reality? Like, am I the one that creates everything around me? Am I just a a, a, a summation of, of all the things that I've, you know, intaken in my life to create the reality around me? Is that why perception is so important? Is that why, you know, like, would, would religion, if it disappeared today, would it ever come back exactly as it is? Absolutely not. But the truth of the universe would. We would still be here. Math would still be here. We stumbled upon that shit. Fibonacci sequence wasn't something that we created like that's in nature it's it's absolutely perfect from the 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 point where we're just you know it, the, the the sperm cell to the ovary to pregnancy dude it's all it's geometrically perfect it's all sound right so yeah what do you think of that concept of of us being our own creators does it does it strike a chord does it bother you do you kind of resonate with it how you feel about it um, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I know what you mean. Like, it's such an arrogant thing to say. And I've heard that argument before that, you know, whatever created us created us so that it can perceive itself, which is an interesting thing, too, because without us, like God would be alone, per se, mm. you know, but so it's like it created us just to like hang out with us or something. I don't know. But um, it doesn't really strike a chord with me much. I just I don't perceive myself as like like a God or whatever. You know, um, I just perceive myself as being divine for sure. You know, and I think as fractals of the creator, we have mm. fractals of its abilities. And I talk about that in the book. You know, it, all of the ancient cosmologies 
whether it's Egyptian, uh, Sumerian or whatever, they all explain that in the beginning, um, the first created consciousness, which was self-created, you know, God created the, the physical world through the, the spoken word. And the spoken word basically just means vibration because that's what word is. But its power was 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 uh, its ability is to create at will. It can it can think things and then create it at will through, through the spoken mm. word, through vibration. And we have a fractal of that ability as well. We all have an imagination. We all have creativity. We can imagine things and we can create them. You know, it's everything that's around us right now was created by a human. You know, so in a sense, we we also have that um, ability at a much lower potency. You know, so um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't view myself as a god, um, but uh, technically, we could be considered gods. You know, a, a whatever way you want to look at it. You know, according to the ancient scriptures, we were created um, by the gods. You know, the the Anunnaki. Even the Torah says that we were created by the Elohim, which means the powerful ones. So whether you want to look at it, whatever way you want to look at it, you know, we we stem from the gods or we stem from God. And so by definition, we are gods <laughs> or, you mm -hmm. know, in the family line. Mm. And what I mean by that is the the moment now, if I was to ask you that same question, right, and and here's largely how I bring it to people. You know, because it's almost they don't want to insult whatever God is. We've put the power in this three letter word. Yeah. Right. It, that that like, oh, my, this has to be something like I, I can't be a God because for one, it sounds arrogant. For two, I'll never be able to, you know, outmaneuver my creator. And then I say, yeah, yeah. But what if God is simply just consciousness? Mm -hmm. because all of this perception all this knowledge all this conversation all of it doesn't exist without our perception without us to be conscious to perceive anything going on around us you're nothing what if consciousness is it what if mm -hmm. that's the key to it all what if that's why all of the you know middle eastern texts and and even like the mahabharata when you read that kind of shit like they predicted so much and largely the hindus it's all about consciousness it's all about focusing on your chakras it's all about you know trying to be one with the vessel you're given in order to master and then focus on the mastery of of consciousness same with buddhism it's all the mastery of consciousness same with christ teaching giving you all of these you know christ christos you know it's talking about your your enlightenment it's it's you going reading this book to try to follow his example to become the best you know like him well what's like him what if he's just consciousness what if that's the most pure version of consciousness and all along we've been given all of these books and texts and 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 almost instructions to reach a level of consciousness that once we can all reach collectively is a much more powerful thing because dude archetypes become real when enough people believe in the archetype yeah right? yeah man yeah uh well i know i'm not god because sure. i suck at math <laughs> you know there's no way i can be god that's for <laughs> sure oh, uh, but, but i hear what you're saying man i hear what you're saying and and, and I, I vibe with it um and the concept you just explained about the uh, the collective coming together and and kind of creating that archetype, that's something that was spoken about by uh, Pierre Teilhard, which I did a mm. video on, who's the famous Jesuit mystic who uh, stated the famous quote, we are not um, humans having a spiritual experience, but we are spirits having a human experience. 
you know, he, he's the one who stated that. And he was a trip. I did a whole video on him. And he believes in that idea that as a collective, we all put the power into the archetype of God. And because we do that, we will slowly create um, this, this basin of knowledge that we call God that uh, we then pull power from. So it's like this weird circulating thing. Right. And so the more we put into it, the more we get back and the more we can evolve past this uh, current structure that we have into higher and higher forms of sentient life, sentient and spiritual mm. life. And I, I can, I can agree to that. I think that's, I think in a sense, man, like God or the creator or source, right. Is like, like some strange, like AI type type of being that just holds all knowledge past, future, present. And, and it's just, it's just alien to us. And it's just so unfathomable, mm. you know? And, um, and I think also, uh, what's the word ruthless, you know, because again, if you look at nature, you know, nature's ruthless and i think nature yeah. is is, is cr the creator's direct ex expression and i think the creator will ultimately do what it has to you know to keep on going and um this was kind of a fun idea that i posed recently it's like okay so if we were created by the anunnaki who were created by the creator to simply be a way for it to perceive itself maybe now um the creator is having us design ai so that the AI can uh, develop an even more complex and more intricate way to perceive mm. itself. That makes a lot of sense because AI is basically just collective thought. It's all the knowledge in the world put into one, uh, ultimately one system. And if we think that that system isn't going to create some sort of a being on its own, that is the know all. But then yeah. again, it's like consciousness seems to be this thing that's very expansive. And, and, you know, the more that one is able to expand their consciousness, largely via psychedelics, I find that people who experiment with psychedelics and, and use mushrooms and shit responsibly seem to be the individuals who are the thought leaders of today. I think that that's what's created these people who are these new revolutionaries who are, are reaching people with a, a message that resonates and people don't even know why. That's so, you know, esoteric in its core and so raw in its core that people don't even, you know, a lot of people that I speak to are religious folks who come to me like blasphemy. And I'm like, no, no, hear me out. Like, look, <laughs> I'll, I could take your book, read the same thing as you're reading and just express it differently. And all of a sudden it's like, holy shit. Like, dude, I'm like, bro, we, we don't disagree. I'm just looking at it different. Right. That's all it is. Yeah. We're like, we're perceiving the same book in two different ways. But actually you were speaking about the Anunnaki and <laughs> there's a lot of people who try to explain this and make very little to no sense and it throws people off um and it seems like something that people are still having a hard time grasping um so if you have a little bit of time to kind of you know take a few minutes and cover who the anunnaki were and what their relevance is to us and and kind of guide people along that story a little bit would be great man yeah absolutely man <clears throat> All right. So what people need to realize first and foremost is that according to the mainstream academia, we have only existed for about 7,000 years, which we know is bullshit because there are things like Gobekli Tepe that go back thousands of years prior. But according to the modern timeline, we've been here as a civilization for about 7,000 years. And the very first sophisticated civilization was that of the Sumerians who mm. resided in what is modern day Iraq. 
And the Sumerians were very sophisticated. You know, they left behind many, many writings that we are, still have today that are well-preserved on clay. And there are still many, many artifacts, monuments, buildings. For example, the Great Temple of Ur, U-R. If you get a chance, if you've never seen it, look it up. The Great Temple of Ur, which is huge and massive, still exists. And it was actually one of the very first places that we went to during the Iraq war to hold down as a base. And I know people who have reached out to me who were in that war, um, who were a part of that mission. One of my, one of my uh, supporters online sent me photos of his days during the Iraq war when he was there. And so the Sumerians were very important people. They were the very first and they left behind many, many writings. And in their writings, they tell us that we were created deliberately created by a race of beings known as the Anunnaki. And in at least two different occasions, two different texts, one titled Enki and Ninma, and another one titled um, uh, Anuma Elish, we are told that these beings created us through an admixture of their blood and what is sometimes referred to as clay. And um, they, they tell us many other weird things about these gods. And what's strange also is that one of the oldest, if not the oldest known text to mankind, which is a Sumerian text um, known as the, uh, man, what is it called? I have it right here. As I, before I pull it up in this text, um, we are, we are told that uh, the Sumerians are putting together this strange ritual, this strange ritual for the Anunnaki. And so as, as far back as we've been around, we've been um, worshiping these gods, building monuments and structures for these gods. Uh, the Temple of Ur, the one I just described, was, was built for the Anunnaki. And um, the term Anunnaki is a real term. Some people try to say that it's a made-up term, that Zechariah Sitchin made it up, and Zechariah Sitchin being the, the very first scholar to really dive into all the stuff beginning in the 70s but it's not the word anunnaki is actually referred to in the sumerian text and so in the oldest of the sumerian text and the oldest of the known text we, we are told that our human ancestors basically live their lives for these gods and and uh the text that i was looking for is the kesh temple hymn so in the kesh temple hymn as i'll read for verbatim here we are told that the house whose lords are the Anuna gods, Anuna being short form of Anunnaki, whose priests are the sacrificers of N priest, hold the lead rope dangling, and the A2 priest hold the staff, um, dot, 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 it's broken up there, bring the dot, 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 waters, and so on and so forth. So in this Kesh Temple hymn, we're, which is one of the oldest texts known to mankind, we are reading this strange ritual that is being put together by the Sumerians um, for the Anunnaki, for the gods. And so the Anunnaki are the gods who are most ancient of ancestors worshipped and who are most ancient of ancestors believed and told us um, we were created by. And for we've been around for 7,000 years, right? But for the past, for, for only the past 2,000 years, have we been worshiping, a, 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 sorry, a better way to put it is, within these 7,000 years that we've been around, the first 5,000, so more than half of the time we've been around, we worshiped the Anunnaki. 
when the Bible was being put together, you know, around 600 BC, the Anunnaki were still being worshipped by that name. Um, for example, uh, Hammurabi's law code. If you go back and read Hammurabi's law code, which we're all told about in school, taught about in school, the very opening lines of Hammurabi's law code are dedicated to the Anunnaki, to specific Anunnaki, uh, Enlil and, and Marduk, or, or a couple of them, Enlil, Marduk, and Anu. And so these beings were worshipped by humans for, again, the first 5,000 years. It was only until the onset of monotheism with Judaism and then later Christianity that the worship and the idea of these beings was slowly phased out. And I believe that they were slowly phased out for mostly political reasons, um, but also for, for later religious reasons, which is just a different faction of political. And um, we are told this in the Bible, you know, in, in the Bible, we are told uh, in Jeremiah that when the Babylonians were descending upon the kingdom of Judah, that the Israelites were reverting back to their old ways of worshiping mm -hmm. many gods. And we are also told that um, Abraham's father, Abraham's own father, and Abraham is literally the patriarch of all three of the Judeo-Christian uh, religions, you know, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. We are told that Abraham's own father had worshiped other gods. And so these other gods, when we look at history, were the Anunnaki. So the Anunnaki, again, were the gods that humans worshipped for the first 5,000 years, but who were then slowly phased out with the onset of monotheism because it could be easier to control people with monotheism. And we are told that in the Bible, again, you know, people were reverting to their <laughs> old ways, worshipping many gods, and that got too complicated. So um, Ezra and Nehemiah, after the Babylonian exile was over and the Jews were freed, were told to go back to the kingdom of Judah and bring a new law. And that new law was to be the Torah, the Torah, which brought the idea and philosophy and, and law of monotheism. And so it got easier to control the people with monotheism, one God, one uh, system, one, one world government. And that trend, that blueprint was copied with Christianity because during the onset of Christianity, all the people were worshiping many different gods, the pagan gods, this, this, and that. And so the Roman rulers took the same blueprint, did away with all the polytheism, and created one god, one government, one rule. And so um, I hope that answers your question. Um, but uh, that's basically human history in a nutshell. Yeah, brother. And and I think that that's that's what's important, right, is is regardless of what people believe. And I would like a lot of people to take that away from this conversation is that, look, man, there's so much that spans outside of what your knowledge base is. And if you're not willing to accept anything else as something that may have happened and seem to think that you know enough to explain it all. But when you speak to these people, they have no knowledge of even what you're talking about. You say something like Anunnaki and they just coin it as not conspiracy, just that nah, don't need it in the mental bank. And it's like, well, you you need to see that there's just so much more that the world has to offer, but it relies on each person individually. And I think that the world has been so focused on vanity and ego and everything in your life. Now, what you want, you want to be rich and famous. All you need is a giant ego. You want to be successful. All you need is an ego. You want to trade this currency. Cool. Just build a big ego. 
just become a dickhead, become completely fucking consumed by this paper and this digital money that doesn't need, it's not even in currency. Just be so consumed by something other than focusing on yourself, your family, and your bloodline the way we used to be. Once upon a time, it was very important to us to, you know, continue spreading our seed and continue our bloodline and make sure that our bloodline was raised well and, you know, have standards for the human experience, but we no longer have that. Now all we have is ego, 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 ego. And it just it's just an echo of ego everywhere you fucking go. And nobody is able to just have conversation. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on here is the perspective when it comes from somebody is, let's put it this way. What's that old saying where they say like uh, information is only valuable if you're able to explain it properly to the person that's listening? Right. Like if the person that's listening cannot understand what you're saying, well, it doesn't matter what you know. Right. Because you're never going to convince them and you have a good way of 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 dumbing things down. Because I've listened to multiple podcasts now and each one will tell a similar story, but in a completely different way. It seems like depending on kind of who you're talking to or where the mind goes for that day kind of <laughs> dictates the way that conversation goes. And I just think that that's very it's it's very healthy to be able to kind of analyze the person you're speaking with and relay that information in a way that's understandable. Now, I guess, uh, you know, in in kind of closing the conversation, um, what do you say to a person who uh, let's just say somebody walks up to you and say, Eddie, listen, um, I've been listening to your content. Uh, I grew up either Muslim, Christian, Buddhist. And, and, you know, what you're saying is really resonating with me. What are the first conversations that you start to have with them to kind of explain your position into there being something else? Uh, well, to be honest, man, I, I don't even try, you know, like when I first started looking into this stuff way back in like middle school and, and early high school, I was very uh, fanatical about it. And mm. I would like I would go around and like preach this stuff to my family, my friends, to strangers you know, a funny thing that I always like to say is I remember in, in ninth grade, me and my friend who really believed in me and everything that I was saying would mm. sit down with sticky notes and write endlessly on sticky notes, research Planet X, research the Anunnaki and go around and post them everywhere. So I used to be a lot more fanatical and like really try to like spread this stuff. But I realized that it was it was it was a battle. It was a battle. Not only was it a battle, but I was actually harming some people. I was doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, some people were, were just terrified i actually had this this chick who uh nicknamed me demon because she said the stuff that i had told her caused her to have nightmares you know so uh as i aged and i matured i realized you know i was just going about it the wrong way so um i look at this stuff as like my work now you know like if mm. if you know me personally i actually don't really talk about this stuff a lot personally because it's mostly it's mostly my work now so i i only speak to people who are generally interested in wanting to know what it is that I know. Um, you know, I, I'm no longer interested in trying to preach this stuff, no longer interested in trying to change people's minds. You know, I think it's more important for me right now as a person to number one, um, enjoy myself while I'm here and, 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 and be of help, just be of general help to my friends and family and those people around me. But this type of stuff, this paradigm, mind-breaking, cultural-shattering type of stuff is my work, and I leave it for people who are interested in, in learning and knowing. Mm. So if somebody were to approach you 
from the opposite side of the fence willing to kind of take on this new information you know completely yeah. willing to say look i'm going to put my paradigm down like i, I want to sit with you and just kind of you know hear what you have to say what would be kind of just like the icebreaker with them that you would give them into your your dare i say your world or your you know what i mean like what do you <laughs> yeah, call I it you're saying. <laughs> uh i would just start off by asking you know why why do you want to know you know mm. what's happening in your life that is causing you to now question your own beliefs mm. i would get down to the root first before i even start shattering their mind with all this information i would want to get to the root of you know what what's going on in their life and start with that first because this stuff isn't for everybody you yeah. know some people will lead a more happy and healthy life being a christian mm. being a muslim sure you know, um, so I would get to the root cause first of why they're even beginning to question themselves. And if I felt like it was a, a just cause and they were ready to to move past the indoctrination that they have, then, yeah, we'll start to open it up, you know, slowly. And, and I'd probably just start with, you know, what religion they have or, or what beliefs they have. And and um, the funny thing is, when I used to do that, the very first thing I used to ask people was, uh, are you afraid of dying? Mm. that used to be my first question are you afraid of dying that was my way of weeding out people because if they said yes then that kind of told me they weren't prepared for this because this stuff is like a death you know i went through a time period yeah. where i literally almost broke my mind going through the stuff i went through a crazy psychosis but luckily i got out of that um so yeah i, I would start with the root you know why why are you even beginning to question yourself start there you know and then and then slowly build it up mm. No, I think that's a good way, man. I think it's very good is to ask somebody a, a very uh, blunt question because it's true. Like your your ego, your entire persona, the the cardboard figure of you that you hold in front of you, which is your belief system, your your ego, everything you think you know, you're going to be actually like asked to just throw that in the garbage and create a whole new version of you. And maybe it's just because I'm a Scorpio that the whole like death and rebirth is always just something that I'm like, yo, bring it. Like, let's, let's, let's die and be reborn. Right. Like, fuck <laughs> it. There's too much, it's too much to know to run from it. Right. Like, I just find it fascinating. I always have. Um, and I think that uh, I definitely want to have you on a bunch more to, to just, you know, constantly talk about your new projects and uh, you know, everything that you've kind of come up with. So uh, before I get you to start, uh, you know, giving all your books and where people can find you, I want to ask you a question that's a tradition on this podcast. Um, and that's if you could give the world one piece of information that would make it a better place today, what would that be? Man, one piece of information. Um, damn, that's a tough one. One piece of information, I would say you are in control of how damn I want to I want to give a good answer, but it's like dude, uh I would just say you, know, you are in control of your life. Mm. You know, if 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 that statement could actually resonate within people, like as powerful as it really is, because some people will hear that like, all right, whatever. But if I could tr if people could truly hear that and truly believe that that's what i would say you are in control of your life mm, absolutely man and uh where can everybody find you where can everybody find your work let us know all about your books and stuff like that and uh, make sure you let the audience know what's up 
Yeah, yeah, this has been fun, man. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you to everybody listening or watching. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Esoteric Eddie. You can find all my videos and documentaries on YouTube at Esoteric Eddie TV. And my books and everything else on my website at EsotericEddie.com. Excellent, man. Well, I would highly encourage every single person that listens to this to make sure that you guys check him out. Give him a follow on Instagram. Make sure that you guys uh, pick up every single one of his books. Uh, and also make sure that if you guys are on Spotify and shit, man, make sure that you guys just type in Esoteric Eddie. And uh, there's a lot of shit on there for you guys to listen to. He's done a lot of good podcasts and stuff. And thank you for, uh, you know, taking the time out, even though there was a little bit of a fuck up with the, uh, the time zones on my behalf. It's entirely my behalf. But, uh, man, I appreciate having you here, man. Thank you. Thank you guys for tuning into my podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Real Seven Show. If you guys would like the video versions of the podcast, you can follow me on Rumble at The 7 Show or on Rockfin at Real 7 Show. Be sure when listening to leave a five-star rating and review on the platform that you are listening on. Also, make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family. It helps the podcast grow more than you guys know. And until next time, this is The Real 7 Show.